Good morning, and I realize I'm talking to some online in parts of the world where it's not morning anymore. But whether you're watching online or you're in person at North Richland Hills, South Lake, or West Fort Worth campus, I appreciate that it is a priority to you to worship God every week. That this is our way of pledging our allegiance to our only King. So wherever you are, thank you for being with us this morning. Now, can we all agree that as years go, 2020 has been a dumpster fire. And we could all use a little encouraging right now. And so starting next week, I'm going to do a series I'm calling That Is Who You Are. And we're going to get together and just celebrate the awesomeness of God. We're going to look at some Old Testament stories that remind us that the I Am still is. That He is our way maker and miracle worker, and promise keeper, and light in the darkness. So, you know somebody in your world of influence that could use an extra dose of hope right now. So let me encourage you to invite them to come with you if you're coming to in-person worship. If you're still watching online at home, have them come to your house or just let them know so they can watch online where they are. I think it will be a great season. That is who you are starts next week, which means this week we're wrapping up this short series I've called The Separation of Church and Hate. And as you would expect, I got a ton of feedback to the message last week. Now, most of it I could group in three main categories. I got a lot of feedback from saying, Pastor, thank you for your boldness and taking on controversial subjects. Let me tell you, I have never once picked a subject because they're controversial. I try to pick subjects because they're relevant. Now, they might be controversial to some people, but that's not why I picked it. I want Christians at the table having important conversations with their friends about the things that are relevant to our nation. And so I try to equip us to have those conversations. I just want you to know, thank you for that encouragement. But I don't pick sermons because they're controversial. I pick them because I think Jesus' people need to talk about them. Another group of uh, feedback said, you helped me because I've been battling fear. This whole conversation about the direction of our nation makes me afraid, and I need to be reminded that Jesus is on the throne, His kingdom is eternal, and I don't need to be afraid about the future no matter who gets elected. And I hope that was a message that encouraged you. And then finally, I got a lot of feedback from people who said, like you, I'm just so concerned, frustrated, and sad over the political climate in this nation, and especially that many Christians are contributing to it. I got an email from a former elder. I've not seen a time when people I love and respect, people who love Jesus, have been so willing to speak out against their brothers and sisters in Christ. It's easy to feel immobilized and confused. And I understand that confusion. That sense of paralysis. I'm wondering, is it even possible to engage in the political process today in a way that would open doors for our witness instead of close them? And I can understand why you might be afraid to even try. Because here's the reality. People are politicked off. Have you noticed? Now, political differences have always existed in our nation. 
Political debates have always gone on. But not with the kind of rancor and animosity I'm witnessing today. My paternal grandparents were lifelong Democrats. My maternal grandparents were Republicans back in the 1950s in Texas when you could never hardly find one. And yet we never worried when we got together for a family meal if a fight was going to break out. Some of us are old enough to remember a time when people could be in different parties and still be nice to each other and actually like each other. But today, when people find out that their politics aren't the same, almost immediately character assault and compromised ethic and even severed relationships. How many of you know someone who's lost a lifelong friend or severed a family connection over politics? Let me illustrate. You recognize this face. Even if you're not a country music fan, Garth Brooks has been one of the most popular entertainers in our nation for a number of years. He went to Oklahoma State University in Stillwater, Oklahoma. Go Cowboys. He might be their most famous alum. Their second most famous alum would probably be a football player named Barry Sanders. He was an All-American. He went on to play in the pros for the Detroit Lions, had a great career. He is in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. So when Garth Brooks last summer did a concert in Detroit in honor of his good friend, he wore a Barry Sanders jersey, number 20. And immediately social media erupted. I don't come to a concert to hear about your politics. I will never buy another one of your records. You see, they thought he was promoting Bernie Sanders the senator from Vermont that was seeking the Democratic nomination for president. Now, you understand, if I don't like your politics, there is nothing good about you anymore. I can't have anything to do with anything about you anymore if you and I don't agree on our political views. And then here's the reality. I know a lot of people that tend to vote for the Democrats most of the time. I know a lot of people They tend to vote for Republicans most of the time. You know what I've learned? They're good people. They're good people. And they typically share the same noble goals. They just don't always agree on the best political strategy to reach them. They all want people to rise above the level of poverty. They do. Uh, One strategy is, well, we need to lower taxes so we can put more money into the marketplace and private enterprise to create more jobs so people can make more money and get out of poverty. And another strategy says, well, we need to raise taxes to give our government more money to create programs that can help needy people. And both strategies have their pluses and both have their minuses. And you're not a bad person if you don't agree with me on the best strategy for that are many other issues that government tries to deal with. And so that's why Christians are going to go to the polls in November and they're going to vote their convictions and they're not all going to vote alike because they're going to disagree on the best strategy to solve some of the problems in our nation. We don't have to agree politically. To agree that we should all love unconditionally. We don't have to make enemies when we try to make our points. Because we all ought to be able to see that what is currently going on in our nation isn't working. And we have an opportunity 
as followers of Jesus to demonstrate how you can engage in politics and model a better way. And so I'm going to suggest some things that we could do. And frankly, I don't think a single thing I'm going to suggest ought to be remotely controversial if your fundamental allegiance is pledged to Jesus. And here's the first. Above all people, Christians should excel at practicing civility. Now, this is one of the very first important lessons parents must teach their children. That you're going to grow up in a world with many people who are not like you, and you must learn to become a decent human being. So I have a good friend who lives in Dallas. We play golf a lot together. He is from Ohio. He is a huge fan of the Ohio State Buckeyes. And he has raised his two children who've lived most of their lives in Texas to be huge fans of the Ohio State Buckeyes. So a few weeks ago, he goes to the soccer practice where his eight-year-old boy is playing. And he notices a problem. His eight-year-old son is sitting on the ball with his back turned to the little boy. He's supposed to be warming up and kicking the ball back and forth too. Well, he assumes there must be a problem with that little kid because my son's just a sweet boy. But he immediately knew, no, that's not right because his wife is out there like this in front of the face of her son. And then she comes off the field and points to him and said, this is all your fault. (laughs) Do you know why their son was not kicking the ball to the other little boy? Because the other little boy was wearing shorts from the University of Michigan. (laughs) And my friend said, it was my worst dad fail moment and my proudest dad moment of my life. In fact, he called his father in Ohio who said, I don't see what our grandson did that was so wrong. Okay, here's the reality. We have to live in a world with people with different convictions and opinions. There are people that believe that cats are better than dogs. There are people who believe that the barbecue in Dallas is better than the barbecue in Fort Worth. Now, what are we going to do with these people? We can't put them in jail. They're already too full. (laughs) Civility comes from a Latin word that literally means citizen. It is the virtue that people must practice if a society is going to seek the common good. It's what it means to be a good citizen. It's not a personality trait. It's a character trite. You're not born with it. You develop it. And shouldn't anybody model it better than someone whose character is being transformed by the Spirit of Christ? And so look, for example, Colossians chapter 3. Since God chose you to be the holy people He loves, You must clothe yourselves with tender-hearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. No one should model that better than Christians. Or look at Ephesians 4. Let everything you say be good and helpful. That would take half the stuff on the internet off right there. 
Let everything you say be good and helpful so that your words will be an encouragement to those who hear them. And do not bring sorrow to God's Holy Spirit by the way you live. Remember, He's identified you as His own, guaranteeing that you will be saved on the day of redemption. Can I just stop for a moment? Would you let your minds wrap around that thought, you can make the Holy Spirit sad? You can make the Spirit of God sad. How could I do that? And keep reading. This is how. You need to get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words, slander. When you say things or post links about things that you didn't research that don't actually prove to be completely true, you've made the Holy Spirit sad. Get rid of all these types of evil behaviors. Instead, be kind to each other. Christians should model kind better than anybody else. And can we all admit, it's a lot easier to be unkind when you're typing on a screen instead of talking to a face. And so I implore you to practice civility and refuse to engage in the toxic and vitriolic debates that take place on social media. Clinical psychologist Joshua B. Grubbs did a study of 6,000 Americans. What are your political opinions and how do you express them? And they all said, well, at some point on social media. And almost every one of them admitted at some time or another to what they call moral grandstanding, virtue signaling, where you throw out a view basically to try to impress people, to improve your status with a certain constituency. And what he found was the people that do this the most have the most relational conflict. The people that engage in this behavior the most are the very people that have the most relational problems. And so let me just say, church, beware of the comment section. That's where the devil lives. I'm not exaggerating. There are demons waiting for you to hop into the comment section to pour poison into your heart. James says, you must all be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. Human anger does not produce the righteousness God desires. Please notice, James does not put an unless qualifier in that verse. Be quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to get angry. Unless they say something. There's no unless. Human anger doesn't produce the righteousness God desires. I don't care how good the goal you're chasing is, God isn't going to bless you if you treat people bad to get there. When did it ever become okay to hate? It doesn't mean you need to change your position, but it might mean you need to change your tone. It's always important to treat everybody Like they're important. Which means then that no one should be better than Christians at pursuing humility. 
Humility just means treating people in a way that makes them feel valued. And this happens too rarely in political conversations. I just don't see how anybody could believe that. How could anybody vote for them? Now, what you just practice is called fundamental attribution error. Now, that's where we ascribe to someone we disagree with the worst possible motivations, while we always ascribe to ourselves the best possible intentions. Let me illustrate. Now, you know, the reason your kids struggle in school is because your home's so dysfunctional. Now, yeah, my kids struggle in school, but they have learning disabilities. And yes, I'm overweight, but, but that's because I inherited bad genes. You're overweight because you're just lazy and undisciplined. And the reason you're always late is because you just don't care enough. Yeah, sometimes I'm late, but it's because I have so many important things to do. And so we ascribe to other people the worst possible reasons for why they think or act like they do, while we ascribe to ourselves the best possible motivation. So when you say, how can anybody think that way? You might be saying more about yourself than you're saying about them. Miles' law says that people stand where they stand because they sit where they sit. That where you stand depends on where you sit. Let me illustrate. So I like to play golf. And so uh, a few years ago, I was at something called a driving range. If you don't know about golf, it's where bad golfers go to groove bad golf swings by hitting lots of bad golf shots. So that's what I was doing, grooving my bad golf swing. It was a very hilly driving range. And I've been there about 20 minutes, and a guy comes up and shakes his finger, and he's very mad and says, how would you like it if people tried to hit you with a golf ball? I said, what do you mean? See, he was the guy that was driving the tractor out on the range picking up the balls. I mentioned it was hilly. I said, sir, I never saw you out there. He came and stood next to me, and he realized he was behind a hill, and I could not see him. And he apologized, because when he stood where I stood, he could understand why I did what I did. See, everybody's viewpoint makes sense to them. You didn't come to your political views in a vacuum. You were raised in a context. You had experiences. You had people that poured into you. Everybody is like this. And when we are humble, we're quick to listen and we ask, well, well, how did you come to see it that way? Let me tell you, sometimes it takes more courage to listen than it does to speak up. And so, Brother Paul says, when you do things, Do not let selfishness or pride be your guide. Instead, be humble and give more honor to others than to yourself. Do not be interested only in your own life, but be interested in the lives of others. It's just never wrong to treat people right, even if you think they're wrong. And it might even cause you to rethink what's right when you try to understand where somebody else sits. So, for example, it doesn't happen enough, but in 2018, our Congress behaved like they're supposed to behave, and they worked together for the common good, and they passed the First Step Act, which was about prison reform. I thought it was a marvelous bill that was set to reduce some ridiculous sentencing of minor drug offenders who were nonviolent, and throwing them in our already overcrowded prisons. 
Now, what you need to know is that the ground for that bill had been plowed a couple of decades before by a very committed conservative Christian named Charles Colson. Now, Charles Colson served the Nixon administration. He was a law and order conservative. He was a believer in three strikes and you're out, throw them in jail and throw away the key. Then Charles Colson went to prison, where, by the way, he found Christ. And what he realized is that what we're doing isn't working. It's not enough to be tough on crime. You need to be smart on crime. And so this political conservative got out of prison in the 90s and began to champion prison reform. He began to take people into the prisons with him to see what was and what wasn't working. And because he sat where he sat, he changed his mind about where he once stood. Followers of Jesus can engage the political process in a way that makes a huge difference for good. But we're going to have to do it differently. And it's got to start with the way we engage differences in our own family. Practice civility. Pursue humility. How can that be controversial for a follower of Christ? And most of all, prioritize unity. There are few things that make a parent sadder than to watch their children attack each other. And because Jesus knows the heart of the Father, the last thing he did before he went to the cross is pray for his brothers. In John 17, I'm praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. I pray that they will be all be one, just as you and I are one, as you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And may they be in us so that the world will believe you sent me. Now, two things stand out about that prayer to me that are absolutely critical. Here's the first. Jesus knew his church would be diverse. That's why he prayed for their oneness. You don't have to pray for oneness if everybody's already all alike. Jesus not only knew his church would be diverse, he wanted it to be diverse. Think about the first disciples he called. He picked Simon a zealot who thought the best strategy for dealing with Roman occupation is to kill Romans. He picked Matthew the tax collector who thought the best strategy for dealing with Roman occupation is to accommodate. He picked two men on complete opposite ends of the political spectrum to be his first disciples. Do you think there weren't a few tense looks at those first few meals? Why did Jesus want a diverse church? Well, that's the second thing about that prayer. That Jesus says, Pursued unity is connected to evangelism. May they all be one so that the world will know that you sent me. Now church, lean in. Remember this. Jesus' strategy for reconciling the world to the Father was to put on display a church 
of different people reconciled to each other. And it worked. The first 200 years of the church, a community developed that the world had never seen. People of different ethnicities, tribes and tongues, Jews and Gentiles, slaves and free, women getting treated with the same value as men. The world had never seen a community like this. It worked. It still does. And Jesus still wants it. A church where people with different political views and different ethnicities and different backgrounds and customs and traditions and preferences about worship and you just make the list and they come together and their love for Jesus transcends all the things the world says should keep them apart. Jesus wants that church. Now here's the thing, you're all nodding your head, yeah, I love the thought of diversity. That's not the problem. We love the thought of diversity. What we don't love is diversity of thought. Ooh, mic drop. <laughs> I love having people different from me at my church just as long as they never say anything I don't agree with. That's not what Jesus prayed for. So what do I do about people in my church whose politics are different to mine? Take them to lunch. Pray with them. Invite them to your community group so you can become better friends. Unity is not an option. It is mission critical. The world needs to see that our common love for Jesus produces a love for each other that builds bridges instead of walls. The world already knows how to build walls. And so that same night, a little earlier, Jesus said this to them. I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other. Just as I've loved you, you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you're my disciples. It's very important to Jesus that the world knows who his followers are. They don't know we're followers of Jesus because of our bumper stickers or our wristbands or our disgusted size. You know, where we see something we don't like and go, they know we follow Jesus because of the radical way we have decided we are going to love each other. Love makes a way to the way. And lack of love gets in the way. And so I have a good friend who pastors a church on the East Coast. And he was sharing with me how some Christians there got into an internate squabble on politics. And it got ugly. They insulted each other. They questioned whether the other person could really be a Christian if they were going to vote like that. Of course, other people joined into the mud with them. And then this comment appeared. Wow, you Christians are so stupid. I thought your Jesus was better than that. And the two words that gutted my friend were these. Your Jesus. 
Because the way they behaved made it harder for that person to say, my Jesus. Are we making it easier or harder for people to say, my Jesus, by the way we engage politics? I'm thankful for my country. I'm thankful I live in a land where I get to participate in the process of deciding what the future might look like. You should be too. You should pray a lot for our leaders. You should vote your conscience. But please, in the next four weeks, don't do anything before the election that will compromise your witness after it. The who before you is more important than your particular view. And they need to know who you think is most important of all. And so, here's my word to you, church. Campaign for Jesus. You are ambassadors for Christ. No matter your politics, we have different ideas over the best strategies to address real problems in this country. But never forget, you're an ambassador for Christ. With all my heart, I believe the gospel is the hope for this nation. And it is the hope for the world. And the way we act today will open or close a door for someone desperate for good news tomorrow. Campaign for Jesus. Let's pray. So God, we do thank you for our country. We do pray for our leaders that they will walk in wisdom, that they will put the common good above their own personal agendas. And we pray, God, that this moment your church will step into to model a kind of decency, civility, and kindness the world just needs to see more. And so, Father, send your Holy Spirit into our conscious thoughts before we hit sin, before we open our mouths, May we think, is this going to help somebody say, my Jesus? And Jesus, we want you to come soon. But until then, we are gathered to say with boldness, presidents and princes and czars come and go. But you, King Jesus, are on your throne forever. Your kingdom is eternal. And to you alone do we pledge our ultimate allegiance. And in your name we pray. Amen.